And will you turn in your Bibles, first of all, to the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament. Proverbs chapter 24. I'll be reading verses 1 through 12. Proverbs 24, 1 through 12, in preparation for the reading of our sermon text today. Luke 23, verses 13 to 25. We begin with Proverbs 24, the first 12 verses. This is the word of God. Let us therefore give it our reverent attention. The Holy Spirit says, Do not be envious of evil men, nor desire to be with them. For their minds devise violence, and their lips talk of trouble. By wisdom a house is built, and by understanding it is established. And by knowledge the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. A wise man is strong, and a man of knowledge increases power. For by wise guidance you will wage war, and in abundance of counselors there is victory. Wisdom is too exalted for a fool. He does not open his mouth in the gate. One who plans to do evil, men will call a schemer. The devising of folly is sin, and the scoffer is an abomination to men. If you are slack in the day of distress, your strength is limited. Deliver those who are being taken away to death. And to those who are staggering to slaughter, oh, hold them back. If you say, see, we did not know this. Does he not consider it who weighs the hearts? And does he not know it who keeps your soul? And will he not render to man according to his work? And now we turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23, beginning at verse 13. The Lord Jesus Christ is on trial before Pilate. It is Friday morning the day of the Lord's death on the cross. And he is being evaluated. He is under trial. Verse 13. Pilate summoned the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought this man to me as one who incites the people to rebellion. And behold, having examined him before you, I have found no guilt in this man regarding the charges which you make against him. No, nor has Herod, for he sent him back to us. And behold, nothing deserving death has been done by him. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. Now he was obliged to release to them at the feast one prisoner. But they cried out all together, saying, Away with this man, and release for us Barabbas. He 
was one who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection made in the city and for murder. Pilate, wanting to release Jesus, addressed them again, but they kept on calling out, saying, Crucify! Crucify him! And he said to them the third time, Why? What evil has this man done? I have found in him no guilt demanding death, therefore I will punish him and release him. For they were insistent with loud voices, asking that he be crucified, and their voices began to prevail. And Pilate pronounced sentence that their demand be granted. And he released the man they were asking for, who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder. But he delivered Jesus to their will. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truthfulness, the candidness of your word. And though it hits us hard, we pray that we would be shaped by it. We pray to that end that you would send your spirit that we might find in this account of vicious injustice, we might find you working even this together for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. We humbly ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Pontius Pilate, the governor of the Roman province of Judea, now finds himself in a very uncomfortable spot. Pilate is stuck on the horns of a dilemma between the demands of his political office and his political career on the one hand, and on the other, the demands of his conscience. And like an animal caught in a snare, the more Pilate struggles to get out of this dilemma, out of his situation, the more he struggles, the tighter the knot around him becomes. And Pilate's struggling hard, isn't he? We've seen it already. All that Friday morning, from early morning, Pilate has been trying just about every angle he can think of just to weasel out of his solemn duty, his solemn legal duty, to free this absolutely innocent political prisoner, the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. He's been trying everything, and he's becoming increasingly desperate about it, because it's not just written in the Hebrew Scriptures, is it? It's written on the human heart. Deliver those who are being taken away to death. And those who are staggering to slaughter, oh, hold them back. Now, as Solomon first intended those words of Proverbs 24, Solomon is talking about the sheer judicial kindness of correcting those who are obviously heading off in a dangerous direction, a foolish direction. In other words, what he's saying by the Spirit is, whoever you are according to your station in life, correct those who are going on their merry way down the broad primrose path that takes them to hell. 
Stop them. Correct them, deliver them, teach them, show them the error of their ways. Which is excellent counsel. It's godly counsel. Whether it's given to provincial governors or whether it's given to moms and dads in the home. Why should they die? Why should my people die? Why should my children die? Correct the guilty. Enforce the law. And so deliver the repentant sinner's soul from death. That's Proverbs 24. The difficult thing about the trial of Jesus is that there is absolutely nothing in the prisoner's words or behavior to correct. It's not yet past the middle of the morning and already they've shuttled Jesus back and forth between Pilate and Herod Antipas and then back to Pilate again. They've done this in the presence and in the absence of representation from the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin, of course, wanted their voice in this. They wanted to spin things their way. And each one of these interviews, the Roman authorities attempt, even under duress, even under torture of the prisoner, each one of the interviews turns up absolutely nothing. And really, how could it? After all, in the words of 1 Peter chapter 2, Jesus committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, reviled not in return, while suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. That was the behavior of Jesus. And even a hardened political animal like Pilate doesn't have the stomach to condemn a man like him. His conscience won't allow it which is remarkable. It's remarkable that Pilate's conscience wouldn't allow him to do something, because even to speak of conscience in a man like Pilate demonstrates just how glaringly wrong the judicial delivering up of Jesus to the will of the mob is. Think back a bit in this gospel, because we've met this man Pontius Pilate before, haven't we? Luke first introduced Pilate to us back in chapter 3, verse 1, all that long ago, in which we learn where Pilate stands in the flowchart of Roman politics at the time. <coughs> but the office he holds tells us nothing about the man, really. It gives us no insights into his character. For the insights into Pilate's character, we have to wait ten whole chapters until in Luke 13, 1, we find this. Now, on the same occasion, what was that occasion? Well, as Jesus and the disciples were making their way south, down through Perea, toward Jerusalem. On that occasion, 
on the same occasion, there were some present who reported to Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Dear ones, we are talking about a very bad man. A very dangerous man. Evidently, Pilate has no scruples whatsoever about having people literally cut down in the very act of worship, whatever his reasons may have been, if he had any. And now before this same man stands a man like no other man he's ever met. Other prisoners, and there have been other prisoners, other prisoners curse when they're being ridiculed, when they're being abused, when they're being scourged. Other men retaliate in whatever way they're able, even if it's just to spit, even if it's just to mumble contemptuous things under their breath. That's what other men do. Not so Jesus. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that's led to slaughter, like a sheep that's silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. What do you do with a prisoner like that? I'll tell you what you do. If you're governor, you exonerate him. You declare the man not guilty. You go to every length necessary in a public way to restore the man's health and honor and reputation. He is probably due compensation and restitution for his time and trouble, the things he's suffered. That's what you do if you're governor. And more than that, in a perfect world, a world that's under God's law, there's this little disincentive to the overzealous prosecution. You'll find it in Deuteronomy 19, beginning at verse 18. In a trial, according to God's law, in a trial, the judges shall investigate thoroughly. And if the witness, that is, the witness for the prosecution, if the witness is a false witness and he has accused his brother falsely, listen to this, then you shall do to him just as he had intended to do to his brother. Thus you shall purge the evil from among you and the rest will hear and be afraid and will never again do such an evil thing among you. Thus you shall show pity Thus you shall not show pity, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. God's holy law has teeth, doesn't it? And this isn't a personal vendetta that God's directing when he demands of people 
life for life. It's justice. And more than that, it's deterrence. Legal deterrence against all frivolous litigation, and particularly against the framing of an innocent man. You want the death of this man? Fine, there's nothing wrong with the death penalty in certain categories of cases according to God's law. Nothing wrong with the death penalty. But you'd better have a good, strong, well-substantiated case against him. An absolutely certain airtight case. Because in God's world, and according to his law, this capital case can backfire in a major and irreversible way against the prosecution. So, has there been a thorough investigation here of the facts? Well, let's review. First, Jesus has had that uh, preliminary arraignment before the high priest. And then, even before the sun had come up, the Sanhedrin is called in, at least representation from the Sanhedrin, and they become the prosecution, prosecuting such patently false and shifting charges as blasphemy, initially, and then as the morning wore on, insurrection. That became the charge. They bring him before the Roman governor because they want to make their disagreement with Jesus into a capital case. They want Jesus dead. The governor interviews him with and without the Sanhedrin present. No grounds for prosecution found. Pilate then sends him over to Herod, Herod Antipas, to make sure the case is being heard within its proper jurisdiction. Herod finds nothing and sends him back to Pilate, who, we learn from John 19, interviews Jesus once again, and once again finds no fault in him. So under God's law, it's not looking good for the prosecution at this point, is it? In fact, Pilate acquits Jesus of the charges against him three times. After the first interview, he tells the chief priests and multitudes in verse 4, I, this is the governor speaking, I find no guilt in this man. After Herod's input, at a second interview, Pilate tells them again in verses 14 and 15. You brought this man to me as one who incites the people to rebellion, and behold, having examined him before you, that is, this has been all transparent to you, having examined him before you, I have found no guilt in this man regarding the charges which you make against him. No, nor is Herod, for he sent him back to us. Not, uh, nothing deserving death has been done by him. And the governor tries once again publicly to address the growing crowds. He tries to address them reasonably, tries to address them judiciously. In verse 20, 
but by now it's patently clear to him. There's blood in the water. And the crowd stirred up, start chanting things they do not understand. Start to do things they know not of. And suddenly, in the twinkling of an eye, all Jerusalem, the city of David, where a thousand years before God had set up the thrones of justice, Jerusalem falls back into the unreasoning, unreasonable ways that God decries in Isaiah's very first chapter. How the faithful city has become a harlot, she who was full of justice. Righteousness once lodged in her, but now murderers. So fully seven centuries before that Friday morning, wherever we speak, God invited Israel back to reason. Addressing them with these words, Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from him. And now on this Friday morning, 700 years later, they chant of that Holy One. Crucify. Crucify him. Twice the pagan governor pronounces Christ, the Holy One of Israel, not guilty. And once again he tries to do so, his conscience demands it, but he's shouted down by the crowd. Finally, he raises his voice. After all, remember, he is the governor, the provincial governor. He's the representative of Caesar. He is the guardian of justice in Judea. He must be heard. And he said to them the third time, Why? What evil has this man done? I have found no guilt in him demanding death. The Roman governor has spoken which is tantamount to saying Caesar has spoken. Tiberius Caesar has exonerated Jesus of Nazareth through his governor. Acquitted him, cleared him of all wrongdoing against the empire. Roman law has spoken and still they demand he die. So now, who's inciting insurrection? Who's stirring up the people to rebellion? The mob's clearly out of control. Even the Roman cohort of several hundred armed men can do nothing at this point. Not only does the mob by now outnumber them, by this point they've even lost the moral authority to act. The Roman cohort, the Roman soldiers, have lost the moral authority to act because by arresting Jesus without legal warrant the night before, these military forces actually became instrumental 
in bringing this present crisis to pass. Well, Pilate has one last almost forgotten arrow left in his quiver. Although it doesn't appear in many of the ancient manuscripts of Luke, verse 17 nevertheless gives us a helpful explanation of Pilate's last-ditch effort to set Jesus free. Mark is the evangelist who, in his 15th chapter, explains the custom that Pilate almost forgot. Beginning at verse 6 of that chapter, Mark 15. Now at the feast, Pilate used to release for them any one prisoner they requested. And the man named Barabbas had been imprisoned with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the insurrection. And the multitude went up and began asking him to do as he had been accustomed to do for them. Now at this point, the light bulb goes on in Pilate's head. Of course. Of course, that had been my custom all along. This is the way out of my dilemma. This is the way I can keep both my political position and my conscience clear. And Pilate answered them, no doubt with a great sigh of relief. No doubt putting the question in the way best calculated to get the answer he wanted, saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? Of course they're going to say yes. He's, you yourself said this is the king of the Jews. For he was aware that the chief priests had delivered him up because of envy. But the chief priests stirred up the multitude to release Barabbas for them instead. The governor is now at a loss. Because it's come down to the point where he has to make one more decision. One more choice. Will it be his security and political office that he chooses? Or the security of a conscience at rest, a conscience at peace? Under the circumstances having shot his last arrow. He can't have both. And so having three times pronounced Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God, not guilty, he now caves in, reverses course, and pronounces that their demand should be granted. And he released the man they were asking for, who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, but he delivered Jesus to their will. Beloved, even these narrative portions of biblical history, because it's the story of God's mighty acts of judgment and deliverance, even the historical narrative has a didactive point and purpose to it. Do we teach history? Not nearly as well as history teaches us. 
what we have in this morning's text is an historical record of the worst deal ever made in human history. This is the worst deal ever made. The most terrible exchange of good for evil that history has ever seen. The exchange of him who is the life and light of men for him who by murder and insurrection became the death of men. Christ dies a criminal's death and the criminal walks free. (coughs) And yet, for those who have eyes to see it, in his inscrutably wise providence, from the very beginning, God's often chosen to work out his eternal decree, not in terms of a man's personal merit, but in terms of an exchange. The life of the good and acceptable, given up and given over for the life of the wicked. All through history, hasn't he? In the opening chapters of this book, the opening chapters, he accepted Abel's offering for sin. (coughs) Not Cain's. For in the case of Abel's offering, an acceptable substitute actually spilled its lifeblood. And on the merit of an acceptable sacrifice, Abel was accepted before God. Exchange of the perfect for the imperfect, the holy for the profane, was at the heart of the Levitical religion. The Levitical religion that governed worship all through most of the Old Testament and into the early parts of the New. But is it really possible for the blood of bulls and goats take away sin? Of course not. It never was. God prescribed these substitutionary worship practices for much the same reason, I think, that he prescribed the various imagery adorning first the tabernacle and then later the temple. It is to remind the worshiper of the reality of our redemption. And what's the blazing reality to which all these dark things from the very beginning have pointed? What is the reality of our redemption? The Apostle Paul unlocks the mystery for us. This terrible, terrible exchange is the very heart of the gospel. In his second letter to the Corinthians, Paul speaks of the ministry of reconciliation committed to him as an apostle. The king, the Lord Jesus Christ, has sent him, his ambassador, with this message. Therefore, he says, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were entreating through us. We beg you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God.
And how is that to come about? How can the unholy and profane ever be made holy and acceptable to God? How can murderers and insurrectionists who are justly bound over to death, how can they walk free? By cleaning up our act? By personal merit? Don't look to personal merit to free you, to deliver you from death. It won't help you. Let's consider instead the reality behind all these terrible exchanges of good for evil. What does all this blood spilled for sinners throughout the Bible signify to us? It has always signified and always will signify this, only this. That God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, these things that we find in the gospel, upon first hearing them, grate upon us. They grate upon our nerves. They grate upon our human understanding, our darkened, sin-darkened understanding. For we think... We're fine. We ought to be accepted on our own terms, our own merit. And it is not so. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for the grace of the gospel, the gospel of substitutionary atonement. And we thank you for the work of your spirit, applying your word to our minds over time that we might come to see how necessary it was that a perfect man should die for us. Teach us faith and instill in us faith, for it is a gift. Give us that gift of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, <clears throat> his active obedience of a life of loving and doing your will his passive obedience of the cross. Enable us to trust in him, to forsake ourselves, and to rest in all that Christ Jesus has done for us. We humbly ask these things for our own good, the good of our families, and your own glory. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.